you're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And we are here in our second week discussing Yukiro Ayatsuji's The Decagon House Murders. <gasps> we are covering the fourth and fifth days on the island today, Herds. Well, and the fourth day on the mainland. It's short, but it's there. It is, it and is. And it contains some revelations of diarification. Oh my goodness. That Seiji Nakamura is dead. That's crazy. This is not what you said last week on the show. It's not what I said last week on the show. We'll talk about that more in the third part, I think. But, you know, that's, you know, blunders already happened in Flex. Are you sure you have as good of a handle on this mystery as you say you do? Well, I have something I want to talk about in the mystery section regarding (laughs) how that was actually intentionally Uh impossible to solve, uh, but also why I think that's a good thing and why I will own up to my mistakes. Good. You you better take responsibility because I sure am not. I would never (laughs) take responsibility. So you have to distinguish you somehow. But anyway, yeah, we're, we're doing the fourth and fifth days. Yes. A lot happens uh, on on the fifth day specifically. Um, the fourth day is really just recovering from the deaths of two of the members on the island. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had Oxy and, and Carr perish the day before. But the fifth day is when everybody dies. Uh, and then there were none, as as it were. That's what, um, a, what an ingenious <laughs> title. Uh, that's a good title. Someone should um, use that for a book. It should. I mean, I could think of some better titles, but, you, you know, it's fine. And then there were none is a perfectly acceptable one with no controversial stigmas attached to it. And that's the main thing. So, um, yeah. So Flex, carry me away from this point. Uh, while we are on the island, we start to go further and further through the uh, the case of uh, the Decagon house murder. Yes, we do. Including the mysterious death of LaRue in the middle of the night. Yes. And then Poe dying to a cigarette at the table while they discuss what happened. Yeah, and, and Agatha poisoned by her own lipstick, defeated by her beauty, which is very appropriate, I guess, for what little we know of her character, that she's beautiful and that she likes to panic a lot and Mm. lead to more deaths. I did want to say, I I mentioned last week that the foreword of the copy of the book that I had has a note from Soji Shimada, which he describes the characters as robotic. And I said last week that I didn't necessarily agree with that criticism, but I think I now do. Okay. Because one of the fascinating things that we get is that the further we get into these crimes, it's not to say that the characters don't have an emotional reaction, Mm. but it's that the emotional reaction seems to come about in that they just do less and discuss the crime more. Yeah. We end up in a sort of a three-way standoff by the end of the fifth day where it's Poe and Van and Ellery all in a room together, but they discuss it. They, they discuss the mystery as though it isn't currently happening to them, which is is obviously supposed to, in design, reflect the fact that they're in a murder mystery club. And so, of course, they would assess it like a murder mystery. And they're also in a murder mystery novel. But it, it does come off as a, a just a little, a little detached, a little too detached, I think. I, I want to say that it feels like the way that Yukuda Ayatsuji has written these characters yeah. feels similar to how Isaac Asimov describes his worlds, where they are, de- <laughs> okay. they are detailed enough to where you get an idea of what they are, but they're also bland enough that you can kind of impress yourself upon them and create your own visions of them. So it means the novel doesn't age as much. And yes. that's why one of the reasons that Isaac Asimov's work is so good, such as when we covered Caves of Steel, which you can find up on the podcast. Yeah, if you look a bit too closely and try and look at what the author is putting into the work, you find it a little bit lacking, mm. but you're absolutely correct. I think that if you're reading this novel, you're going to find your 
your mindset being more or less like projected onto one of these characters as they're trying to deal with it. Yeah. And of course the flip side of that is that whilst it works for Asimov, because you can impress your current understanding of technology and futurism onto it. One of the reasons it doesn't work as well with this novel is because when you try and project yourself into a character, you typically project yourself. So you'll only feel a connection with one of the characters or you'll become confused when a character doesn't enact the same way that you would. Also, there's the problem that if you're trying to, like, find a character to project onto, what if that character dies? Exactly. (laughs) You know? Like, what if I really liked the way that Carr was, like, throwing blame around? Like, I'm like, that's how I would react to the situation. I would throw suspicion at everybody. Surprise your dad, And oh, I died the first day. (laughs) God help you if you project yourself on one of the female characters. Like- they, they don't get nearly as much time to actually express their thoughts and feelings beyond just being panicked yeah. or being sad. And um, one, of the, one of the other side effects of this is I feel like when we get our explanation, we're going to have to justify the motive with a lot of exposition. Mm. Because it is obvious at this point that at least the Decagon house murders are motivated by the death of Chiori. And that's what the whole thing with the letters and the plot on the mainland is about. Yep, yep. But we the only time I can think of at all that we explore that on the island is in Orxy's monologue before she dies. Yep. You could suspect Orxy just based on that monologue um, where she, you know, we get the setup uh, as, as she's about to die. Of course, we get the setup that she like, she kind of liked her and they were good friends. There's depth there that we don't really get to see. But I, I think ultimately the, the strong part of this is that it is still a really fun read, mm-hmm. a really engaging mystery. For me, I think that the, the aspect of the story that most kind of is embolic of this is the blue mansion. Yeah. Um, because uh, you could tell Ayatsuji would go on to write, you know, a dozen other novels all based around strange houses, b- bizarre houses and mansions for these murders to take place in. And each of which I haven't read them, but I assume each of which, you know, the layout of the mansion or the trick of the mansion or whatever, you know, whether there's mirrors in every room or there's a hole that you could put a, a gun through, you know, whatever. Like there's always going to be some trick that's specific to that mansion that helps you kind of solve the crime and, and it's all revealed at the end. But the blue mansion is just blue because- Yukito Aetsuji likes weird mansions. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that it's blue doesn't seem to have anything to do with the Blue Mansion murders, which have already been, you know, more or less solved at this point. And I don't know, it just, Yukito Aetsuji clearly has a fascination with interesting architecture and these horror tropes and these mystery tropes, um, but they're not fully fleshed out in this novel. I, I, I think I'd agree more or less. The yeah. I do like all of that said, the way that the 11-sided cup and the 11th yes. room are introduced. It's very silly. Because it's one of those things that classic mystery authors will do. They'll introduce a premise and they'll say, here is an odd thing. And the character goes, and this obviously means, and you have a couple of lines to consider what it means before it's confirmed. So there's this rush where you go, oh gosh, what does it mean? It's a really great moment. And it's really fun because then, oh, there's an 11-sided cup in the 10-sided house with Mm 10-sided cups. That must mean there's an 11th room. It's a really good piece of of setup and payoff that's very quick. since those endorphins in your brain, that sort of thing. Um, Yeah, for, for you, you know, listening outside the studio- the 11th cup is is the method by which Carr was delivered the poison uh, because of oh, the 11th cup. I mean, it might have been the 11th cup, but the 11th sided cup. <laughs> yeah. Be- because all the cups, you know, everything in the house is 10 sided. That's the, the, the bit 
of the Decagon house. But there's one cup that has 11 sides. And so when the poison is put into that cup, uh, if the murderer receives that cup, they just won't drink from it. There's all these leading lines that kind of focus your attention into particular places in the room. Mm -hmm. And the idea with the 11th cup there is, I think that everyone was so distracted by the fact everything was in tens, they just stopped bothering to count. Yes. And that's how the 11th cup slipped them by. Such a fantastic little little note, yeah. And I really like that detail. And also the way that then when we go down into the basement that is Mm -hmm. this 11th room, we get nothing confirmed to us aside from the fact there is another corpse there from the Blue Mansion murders. Yep, yep. And that is a really exciting thing because it raises so many questions for you as a reader of what could have happened with this room in the mystery. But because it's on screen for so short a time, we never really get a mention of whether it was used recently. We don't get a mention of what's down there. It's just we go down there. Oh my goodness, the room is The house is on fire. And there's a corpse. Yeah. Like that's, I mean, literally the, the story goes from, you know, Ellery says, I found the key because the 11th sided cup is literally the key to opening the 11th room. It's ridiculous. Uh, and they find the corpse. They go, you know, Ellery and Van like, we've done it. We've found the room. Now we just have to like wait for the killer to come in. He was Seiji Nakamura, who we of course know is dead. Mm-hmm. Or at least Kochiro says is dead. Then suddenly the house is on fire. And we don't really get the moment-to-moment blows of, of what happens there. We don't get to see all the details. Uh, but I, I don't think you'll find this surprising, Flex, that we are going to get answers very quickly. Mm. Like, the sixth day is answers almost immediately. Yeah. And I, I'm thrilled for you to get to that. I think you're going to love that. Anyhow, we are discussing Yukido Ayatsuji's The Decagon House Murders, the fourth and fifth days. We'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here, and I am overjoyed to be joined by Emma Stonex, debut author of The Lamplighters, a novel that uh, I found out just today while I was doing research for this wasn't actually your first novel, but it's the first novel you've published under your own name. It's a mystery novel about three men who go missing from a lighthouse and the people they left behind. And it's been such a joy to read. Emma, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So The Lamplighters tells the story of writer Dan Sharp's investigation into the mysterious disappearance of three men from the Maiden, an island lighthouse. There's a really sharp contrast between the nature of the prose on shore and the haunted, almost lyrical tone at the lighthouse itself. Why do islands, and particularly lighthouses, capture the sense of unreality and fantasy so strongly across so many cultures? Oh, do you know, I'm fascinated by this. When the lamplighters went out on submission, I was amazed at the international response we had, because I consider the lamplighters to be quite a British book in its flavour. And certainly the tower lighthouses we have in the UK are really extreme. So a tower lighthouse is one that comes directly up out of the sea. It's nowhere near the land. And I think that some of these towers are quite specific to the British coastline and the the treacherous reefs we have around our country. Um, But amazingly, lighthouses just have this global reach. I think people are generally really fascinated by them. And you're totally right that it's about the isolation. It's about living on an island. It's about being in the middle of the sea. And of course, all the symbolism that comes with lighthouses of light and dark and and hope and, you know, treacherous waters. Um, So, yeah, I just think they're incredibly powerful monuments, 
symbolically and definitely have struck a chord with readers. I guess the thing that was really interesting to me is you have a note at the start of the novel about an incident in 1900 uh, up towards Scotland that inspired you uh, immensely for this book. I'll put a link to your recounting of that mystery on BBC's History Extra up on the podcast. Aside from the stuff that we've just mentioned, what is so interesting about that particular incident that kicked off this book for you? Oh, well, I first read about the Flannan Isles vanishing about 10 years ago, and this idea has been percolating in my mind for a long, long time before I actually sat down to write it there is something about this real life mystery that is just so haunting and evocative and compelling um and incredibly it's real three men really did vanish from an island on the outer hebrides in scotland there are all these strange details that sound almost like a fairy tale the door was locked the clocks inside had stopped so it's just kind of steeped in this incredible sea law and lighthouse law and the mythology that comes with that line of work and that isolation. I think it's completely fascinating. Yeah, I was really interested because here on Death of the Reader, we're all about, you know, the murder mystery world tour, traveling around the world, looking at all of the different uh, crime fiction, and particularly murder mystery fiction stories that have come. And when people say island murder mystery to me, I immediately go, oh, of course, Agatha Christie, and then there were none. But I was so interested <laughs> yeah. in the way that your novel is explicitly not a reference to Agatha Christie, but still has so many of those classic mystery elements like the locked room, the bird sailing overhead, the impossible setup. And the thing that was really striking to me was in the introduction, that like ghostly third person narrator that you had. It was so immediately uncomfortable in a way that was both hor horrifying to read but satisfying on a level I cannot describe with so many shifts in perspective. How do you keep it feeling like one piece when it's jumping between all of the different characters? Um, that's such a great question. Um, I, I, the answer is that I just drafted it and drafted it and drafted <laughs> it about 18 times and I certainly didn't get it right the yeah. first, the first time by any stretch. You're right, there's loads of perspectives in this novel. There are about six six different perspectives. The, the idea behind that in The Lamplighters was so the reader felt almost buffeted between different versions of events. I really wanted to capture the feel of the sea so the reader could feel free to disagree with, with the resolution that I put forward. I felt like it was important to put a resolution forward to this mystery. Um, but the whole beauty of the real-life unsolved mystery is that, well, the beauty and tragedy, I should say, is that it's never been solved. So it felt stifling to kind of put my my handprint too hard on that. Um, and I want readers to feel free to disagree. And I think they can because of the many perspectives in the novel. I think the other thing that was really fun is that um, you were talking in the novelry uh, in an article that you wrote about how a writer's uh, craft is their imagination and how your fascination to lighthouses went all the way back to your grandmother's house on the Isle of Wight and this sense of being buffeted by the sea. You know, how long did you just have to stand on the British coastline watching the waves come in until the right word hits you to describe the <laughs> describe the ocean? I actually live um, quite far away from the sea, and especially in lockdown, I've really, really missed it. So I think that the lamplighters is, and my love of the sea is kind of a, a product of, of those childhood holidays, visiting my grandma, going down to Cornwall. And Cornwall is, for me, the home of the best, most majestic tower lighthouses. There's just something about it and the deep, deep mysteries of it. The fact that so much of the ocean is unknown. It's the perfect setting for a mystery, I think. The other thing that I really enjoyed about the novel is that when you have a perfect mystery setting, then the question is immediately raised, well, what is a mystery after all? Like, if we can't actually solve it because these three men were gone and no one knows, it's, you know, it's the story form of if a tree falls in the forest. 
Absolutely. And one of the things that really fascinates me about the true story and that I wanted to bring into the Lamplighters was the uncertainty of the women and the families left behind. They don't have answers. So for them, the solving of the mystery becomes its own animal, really, in the years since the men disappear. How important does the truth become? And to lose somebody and not know what's happened to them must be the worst kind of nightmare, I think. And I wanted to be really sensitive to how that might feel for those people and still would feel, even though the real event happened 120 years ago, there are still families who don't have answers about those men. I think it's really fascinating because obviously part of the story is dealing with, as you say, the stories of the people who were left behind. And in real life, a lot of the people who are left behind never get the answers. And we as mystery readers are absolutely spoiled in that most of the authors that we read do give us the answers. In fact, some authors who haven't given the answers have been given knockback for not giving us the answers, when really that's (laughs) arguably the more authentic thing to do. Life is mystery. We all live with uncertainty, whether it's something as tangible as missing a person or whether it's just who are we where do we come from where are we going the appeal of a novel I suppose which has that shape and has that ending and has that closure so I think in 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 writing a mystery novel it's really important to offer that to the reader and for them to feel at the end of the book that they've had a full meal yeah but at the same time that there's a slight ellipsis at the end there's a slight but what if I disagree but could it have been this instead that's what I that was the hardest balance to strike in the lamplighters. And I think in any mystery novel, you still want to have that very faint question mark at the end so that readers feel that sense of magic as well. Yeah, I think that's kind of one of the main distinctions between the golden age and the era of mystery fiction that we have right now is the golden age of crime fiction was all about having those exacting answers. The detective figures it out and we accept the detective's answer as truth. And I will hear no debate, sir. Um, (laughs) Whereas these days we have these stories that accept that nature of reality and blend it over. And one thing that I thought that you did that was really great in The Lamplighters is having uh, Dan Sharp be a writer himself. I thought that that was uh, an interesting approach to take because it kind of put a, I guess, for you, a self-critical lens in the story, uh, but also acknowledge the nature of the otherworldliness, the canvas on which writers can write these stories. So when we deal with not getting the truth, a writer is the correct person in the story to deal with it. When in the process for you did Dan Sharp go from just being detective character who will fill this role in the story to a writer who critiques this part of the story? Well, it's a really interesting question because initially he did have more of an investigating role and it just wasn't sitting with the tone of the book at all. I mean, when we think about the the crime novels that you're talking about, the detectives who have the answers or Poirot setting everybody up in the drawing room at the end and delivering the answers, that is hugely satisfying and and brilliant in a slightly different genre, I think. But with a mystery where it's a real-life mystery that is unsolved, I think for me, having Dan be a writer and be less kind of forthright in his investigating gave me more room to let the reader's interpretations enter the story. Um, Without that, I think that would have been harder. I didn't want to be too prescriptive. So really, he kind of encompasses that. Emma, it has been so fantastic speaking with you here on Death of the Reader. And I have, I'm going to say it right now, The Lamplighters has been one of my favorite books of the year. So thank you so much for coming on the show to speak with us about it. Oh, thank you. And what fantastic questions. I've thoroughly enjoyed answering them. Thank you for having me. Now, I will tell you here on our Murder Mystery World Tour, the format is that we have uh, one person who reads through a story experienced and one person who reads through it blind. 
And uh, I wanted to ask Emma, if I was to challenge my co-host Herds to reading and potentially solving The Lamplighters, would you be willing to come on and talk with Herds a bit about his experience with the novel later this year? I would love to, yes please. Fantastic. Well, there you go. That's a tease for you later in the year. Thanks for joining us here on Death of the Reader. We'll be back with more of Yukito Ayatsuji's The Decagon House Murders in just a second. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. We are discussing Yukido Ayatsuji's The Decagon House Murders, the fourth and fifth days. I am in the hot seat. Herds has challenged me. And the first thing I want to talk about, Herds, <laughs> yeah. is uh, I have some mistakes that I need to I need to okay. clean up and sweep under uh-huh. the rug. Yeah, well, first of all, <laughs> one of the last try. things you asked me last week was who I thought the introduction prologue scene was. Yep. And I said I would like for it to be Seiji you, because you I- said you said it might be both is what you said. But that's yes, true. Continue, that's true. I, I thought that that would be a nice thematic tie over, but upon rereading that prologue, I realized I'm an idiot. <laughs> yeah. It the half the introduction is talking about this ten sided trap and doesn't mention the blue mansion once. I no. I think I was about a, fool. a trap being walked into is kind yeah. of the key clue there. I um, I was a fool because yeah. I'd I'd read it and I had this I because I didn't really know because it takes so long for the crime to start. I thought to myself, oh maybe you know this is like the parallel between both crimes and I hadn't really yeah, taken the time traps. to consider the fact of it. So mm. I will concede I was a fool. That's okay, an errant fool, uh, and it is most definitely. Van Dyne in that Van introduction. Dine. Um, we'll the get into Van that Dine. in a second. The okay. other thing I wanted to talk about is, of yeah. course, the Blue Mansion murders, because mm-hmm. we get the solution confirmed to us we in do. this part. And I wanted to say how much I loved this and loved why I was wrong, but yeah. also why it's kind of sketchy. I'm very curious. I, I enjoy this too, because as you, as you said last week, you saw- there was a missing gardener on the island and Seiji's body was super burned. So you put one and two together. The body that was burned is the gardener's body. That makes sense, but that's not the case at well, all. Well, I actually right. would like to disagree with you there, Hertz, oh, because everything that is pointed out to us in the lead up to having it confirmed that Seiji is dead points out that neither corpse could be identified. Sure because the body was burned in the Blue Mansion murders. The other one is decomposed below the Decagon house. Mm. Both of them had the same blood type, and that was the only way they could be identified. Uh, at least so far, which corpse is which is actually completely indistinguishable. Mm. The only thing we know for sure is that Seiji is dead. So what have you what have you learned for this? Why do you, why do you think this is sketch? Well, because the thing that's interesting about it is that- uh, and this is something we spoke about with several authors we've had on the show and covered several times, is that there are so many points in murder mystery fiction where an author could just pick a different solution and make sure that, you know, the clues line up vaguely in that way sure. and essentially double-cross you. They're, the real challenge of a proper good murder mystery is making sure that only one solution is possible. Whereas in this case, Yukido Ayatsuji has quite explicitly not done that. He has actively gone about saying it could be either of them. And whilst on the one hand, that makes for an interesting sense of intrigue in terms of looking for solutions, it makes it a little frustrating because it means that you can't say for sure 
which way the double cross trick of the missing body sure. goes. I mean, I guess the broader question is, does it matter? No, not at all. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's why thing, I was right? saying I still that's, like it. That's what I wanted to clarify with you. <laughs> yeah, I still think in the context of it being the secondary murders sure. of the novel, in the context of it largely being about the motivations rather than a technical mystery in the way the rest of the novel yep. is, it's an excellent fr- framing device and the double crossing helps give emotional weight and in, as i said intrigue to it yeah. but at the same time if say for example we were doing a murder mystery show and offering points for it it would never i would say it would be unfair to give <laughs> that as a mystery unless you explicitly pointed out that at best it's a guess that's something that you look let me be clear i think on on the murder mystery side if we were doing a show like that i've seen you predict crazier twists and much more specific details in this. So I- Oh no, totally. Look, like, let me be clear on that. I'm not trying to talk my way out of points here. I Good. know what or I've gotten points. myself into. Into points as well. I'm were. just saying um, that if you were reading this yeah. book and trying to solve it, let me, you shouldn't feel bad nor expect no, no, to be able not. to solve this. No, this is this is a gotcha moment. That's explicitly what it is. Exactly. Um, because what, I should be more clear, what the novel is is really bait and switching you on is the the alivability of Seiji Nakamura. The alive The alivability. <laughs> um, and it also uh, paints Ellery in a really interesting light, uh, you know, at the climax of the fifth day, because he's so convinced that it is Seiji Nakamura, because he doesn't have the same information as people on the mainland. It's a pretty high bar for Ayatsuji to actually put on himself to say, you think there's going to be a simple corpse switch? No, 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 we don't do that around here. You know, my murder mystery has has none of those silly tricks that you mm. might be expecting, um, which is pretty pretty crazy. It um, is a bit. It is a bit. Yeah. I, the other thing I wanted to talk about that I said last week- probably, I was going to say, you should probably actually solve this rather than just is, talk about how much uh, I love this novel. Is yeah. I said that um, our culprit was also portraying someone on the mainland. Yes. And there are a few pieces of evidence that I pointed out. And I realized in the process of saying it last week that I'd made a fool of myself, but I decided to just kind of roll with it. Okay. Because one of the things that I said- is that I expected it uh, It might be Shimada Kyoji or Kojiro or Marasu on the mainland, and I was trying to work out which character, but I said on the show last week that we explicitly don't get to know what the uh, club name of Marasu was when he was in the, the mm. Kyoto University Mystery Club. Okay. And I realized, in hindsight... That's obviously the clue that's going to be the twist because he's on the mainland making an alibi for himself. Interesting. It's Interesting not theory. it's not that he's there because he's trying to, you know, cover up what he's doing in some bizarre way where he's portraying another person, which is what it might have been if the case uh, was done by Ellery. Okay. So really, it seems like uh, Marisu is quite obviously going to be Van Dyne on the mainland, double timing this case, somehow getting back to shore Mm. uh, so that he has the perfect alibi for this crime, that he wasn't even on the island to begin with. I mean, we get that series of clues with um, with LaRue's death. We find that there are, there's uh, a set of footprints leading to the shoreline and then two coming back. Like it seems as though somebody has come from the water because um, the thing i was trying to decide is that it was obvious first of all that the last two on the island were going to be ellery and van dyne which makes course. for a fantastic final so scene because both of them are murder mystery authors who use the pseudonym to cover the yep. actual identities yep um although of course so ellery queen was a known shared identity by two other authors yeah uh, whereas van dyne was explicitly trying to hide who he was one of the other clues that i thought was that I thought was kind of interesting. And it doesn't seem to have factored your reasoning, but maybe, you know, who knows? Let's hear it. Um, 
is that the the names that they take, like Van Dyne and Conan, they actually take them from previous club members. Yes. Do you think that's going to factor in a story at all? Do you think it's going to be like another Van Dyne or another Conan or something that maybe that factors in the mystery somehow? Do you think that matters? It's an interesting question. Yeah. And I, it's not to say that I hadn't considered it, but I just, I can't see a way that Yukido Ayatsuji can really use it because the only yeah. other member of the club is mm. Conan. Okay. And, you know, Shimada Kiyoshi wasn't a member of the club. Kojiro uh, isn't even vaguely in the right ballpark. So Kojiro is such a weird character in this story. Because yeah. they're clearly set up as a red herring until they just say, my brother is dead and I know it. It's like, oh, damn. Yeah, I, I don't know. I was really enjoying Kojiro's characterization and particularly the mystique of him, you know, locking himself in his room and finishing yeah. his papers. Could well, he be up to something darker? Well, it's not even, I mean, when I read that passage, I thought, oh, he's he's not even there. He's got the lights on, but nobody's home. You know, he's off doing something else <laughs> on the island killing people. Who oh, knows? no. But yeah. no, it, it's nothing of the sort. And mm. uh it, it is, I guess, the consistent thing with this mystery and the way it relates to its red herrings in that it lets its red herrings go. It doesn't hold on to its cards, you might say. Yeah, if we look <laughs> back at, for example, the three taps, the first novel we covered on the show, one of the things we raised Ooh. in that novel is that every red herring in the story ends up being resolved as something uh, compelling in its own right. Whereas all of the red herrings in this story basically say, aha, we were red herrings and now we will exit stage left. Yep, exactly. We're red herrings. We're not the answer. Good luck finding the real one. And they take their hats off and they and they leave. And mm-hmm. that's it. Yeah. And it, it does make it a little frustrating, but also it is very self-aware about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's, it's poking it's fun at you while it does this. It's very it's a very deliberate novel. And I think that's, that's why I respect it so much, mm-hmm. even if it does have some rough edges. It just has this sense that, it's going to tell you a very specific story with these specific characters who do one thing each and like, you're going to, you're going to like it. Oh, uh, well, Herds, it has been a pleasure joining you as we discuss Yukido Ayatsuji's The Decagon House Murders. Yeah. We will be back with our last week the on end. the novel covering yeah. Herds. Uh, days six to eight, the ending of the story and your reckoning. I Flex. am so excited to get to this. There's one thing I mentioned on the show in the first <laughs> week that I hope happens exactly as I described it. The real question is, Flex, do you believe in magic? Absolutely, Hurts. Good. That's what I like to hear. You're listening to <laughs> Death of the Reader. This is 2SER 107.3, and we'll be back with more of your murder mystery world tour next time. 